Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope your weekend was fantastic. Hope you got to hang out with some people you love. Hope the sun was shining, the birds are singing. Got an incredible show for you today. Incredible guest. We're gonna get in, get into it today. The one and only, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only. Let me start it off this way. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guest and fellow enthusiast of thought-provoking discussions. It is with the great pleasure that I introduce our guest of honor today, Etienne, Etienne Fontaine, is a remarkable individual whose journey has spanned the realms of activism, public service, and the ever-evolving world of cannabis. He holds the esteemed title of vice president and co-owner of Berkeley Patients Group, BPG, a pioneering institution in the medical cannabis landscape established in 1999. For over two decades, he has dedicated himself to not only serving the needs of patients, but also paving the way for a responsible, legal, and safe cannabis industry. He has been at the forefront of shaping the industry as it expanded, evolved, and professionalized. His profound impact extends far beyond the walls of his dispensaries, reaching into the realms of activism, advocacy, and international engagement. A true luminary in the cannabis movement, his journey has been nothing short of extraordinary. He began as a dedicated activist, traveling 47 U.S. states, passionately speaking at rallies, teach-ins, and rock and roll tours. His tireless efforts reached the hearts and minds of people across the nation, driving the conversation on cannabis rights. Intriguingly, his journey wheezed through the medical cannabis research landscape of the Netherlands, where he was invited by top researchers to explore the Dutch government's medical cannabis program. There, he delved into the intricacies of laboratory tests on medical cannabis and the supply logistics of the Dutch regulatory system. His commitment to cannabis extends to veterans as he passionately lobbies for their right to access cannabis and natural medicines. His background as an Army combat veteran of Desert Storm, coupled with his service in the West Virginia Army National Guard, 
provides a unique perspective on the therapeutic potential of cannabis for veterans. Moreover, his influence reaches the corridors of policy and industry leadership. He has served on the National Cannabis Industry Association, board of directors, and co-founded the Veterans Action Council, leaving an indelible mark on the cannabis movement and its social and economic impact. At the heart of Berkeley Patients Group's mission is the belief in holistic wellness, community development, and giving back. This is exemplified by their robust corporate giving program, which focuses on empowering, educating, and serving the Bay Area community. Today, we have the privilege of delving into the mind and experiences of a true trailblazer, an activist, a compassionate advocate for patients, and an inspiring figure in the cannabis industry. Please join me in welcoming him. How are you today, my friend? I am good, George. It's a beautiful morning here in sunny California. So uh, thank you for the invite. It's uh, it's wonderful to join you and humbling to be here. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, you know, I was reading through the bio and, and, and just doing some research on all the things that you've, you've accomplished. And I, I guess I can just jump into some questions. I think the bio was pretty good and, and you're a fascinating individual. And I just, I just kind of want to jump into this right here and ask you throughout your journey, like you've had a really incredible journey on so many different fronts throughout that journey in the cannabis industry and activism. What are some of the most significant insights you've gained regarding the relationship between personal freedom and the responsible cannabis use? Uh, early on, often I saw that ca cannabis crosses every socioeconomic barrier. How many things can do that besides oxygen, food, <laughs> utility, you know what I'm saying? So um, it was rather fascinating because I came from it from, um, I grew up in very rural Louisiana. So uh, ignorant is a, a light form of where I grew up in the sense of <laughs> there was no access to cannabis. There was no discussion of it. I remember when I was young, some neighbors up the street asked me, uh, do I know what pot is? And I was like, yeah, my mom cooks with that stuff. And they, they kind of <laughs> laughed and like, no, no, man. Um, do you know what a joint is? I'm like, yeah, the thing in between my elbow and my arm. <laughs> Right. So they immediately realized, get away from this kid. He's a square. Uh, <clears throat> so I had no idea. But it later on, I realized it was there. It was around. It's just I didn't have an understanding of it, nor did I really have a need from it for it. I grew up in very much alcohol saturated Louisiana, where when I grew up, uh, it was still legal at 18. I was literally the last of the grandfathered 18 year olds to still go in and purchase at 18, go to a bar and drink, etc. And um, I left Louisiana due to different, you know, their own troubling circumstances and touched base in West Virginia. And that's how I ended up going to the West Virginia National Guard. My father who was the first blind lawyer in Louisiana, Wow, was working for an organization called the Job Accommodation Network in West Virginia at WVU, West Virginia University. And it was basically putting handicapped people prior to the internet in touch with technology, um, such as you were blind and you needed a braille fax machine. Well, where the hell did you go back then? It wasn't in your yellow pages. So Job Accommodation Network was a government clearinghouse specifically for that. So people could call no matter what disability you had, and you could get in touch with the technology you needed and, and the access points, et cetera. 
So when I got to, you know, West Virginia University, I, um, I couldn't afford to go to school. I was poor. So I joined the West Virginia Army National Guard to get an education and uh, did that, got the GI Bill. And one fortuitous day, I think it was October of 89, uh, a very bombastic gentleman by the name of Jack Herrera happened to come to West Virginia University and he had a little, you know, back then it was more of a compilation of pamphlets. That was a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And I purchased that and uh, it blew my mind. I had a girlfriend break up with me in uh, West Virginia because all I would do is go to parties and talk about this marijuana stuff. And I'd just take this book with me and show them logic and information. And I did my English 101 paper on it. Um, out of curiosity. And then, of course, I got gig because I could only find two periodicals at the time, High Times Magazine ah. and The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And I, you had to have like five periodicals mm -hmm. for, you know, a successful paper. And I, I challenged the professors like, you go down to the, the, the university <laughs> library and you try to find a book on drugs, much less cannabis, that's actually <laughs> available to you. All of them have been checked out since 1969. So... <laughs> There was nothing there. And so he agreed with me. And over time, um, I ended up leaving West Virginia because I um, went off to Desert Storm. I got activated for that, had to shut down my life, go off to war. And while I was at war, I sustained injuries and was exposed to nuclear, biological and chemical mm. weapons. And I found myself feeling ill. And I started to, when I came back, uh, started to waste away. I had <clears throat> a wasting syndrome that they couldn't figure out what it was. It wasn't AIDS. It wasn't anything that they could figure out. It just turns out that it was, you know, exposure. And when I would try to go to the VA and talk to them about my, I would use medical cannabis to start to gain an appetite, which it did. It stimulated my appetite. I ate, I got started to get healthy and then when I started to talk to the VA about my cannabis use, I was labeled a known drug user. Wow. Uh, security was called and I was physically removed from four different VA facilities just for mentioning cannabis. This is 1991, 92, 93. So it was very much prop to pre 215 and nobody really understood cannabis. They thought I was just trying to get high and that's all I was doing. But I realized something symbiotic was happening between the plant and I that had re was quite significant. And I realized I was frustrated by making criminals out of my friends to get the medicine I needed. It just seemed stupid. And so I realized that, well, I'm my own caretaker and I'm going to have to take that risk. And, um, you know, I got ripped off, robbed. Mm -hmm. You know, all the things that happen when you have to go to the back alleys, the bathrooms to do deals to try to find, you know, cannabis, much less, you know, what kind of cannabis it is, much less a choice of cannabis, right? You know, so it's usually you, whatever they got, you, lump, you like it or lump it. And if you don't like it, it doesn't work for you. Too fucking bad. There's no refund yeah. policy. There's none of that. So I moved to California to be in a band. I was a musician. And I was fortunate at W at West Virginia. There was a lot of talented musicians and a friend of mine had moved out here prior. And another friend was like, come on, let's go. We'll form a kind of a little super group in California and see where it takes us. <laughs> that journey fell off re real quick because 
the gentleman who moved out here to California ended up with a heroin addiction. Mm. I came home one day and all my shit was took and uh, except for one lamp. And I just picked up a brand new high times. And I sat there in a corner, just kind of crying, flipping through this high times, licking my wounds. And I realized that I went to this, this store and the guy literally just cut it right off the string and handed me the next month's issue. Right. And as I was reading this high times, I realized all the dates in the articles were four to six months behind. And a light dawned on my head. Well, wait a second. If this is all then as now shit's happening right now that I should find. And fortuitously, the Cannabis Action Network, which is a group of activists, Debbie Goldsberry and others who were working with Jack Herrera, had just moved from Kentucky out to California and they had their first meeting. I was fortuitous to, to make it there. And when I was there, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Todd Micaria <clears throat> got up and spoke. And if you're unfamiliar with Dr. Todd Micaria, he is a genius, was a genius, wrote the medical marijuana papers, which was a compendium of government research from the 1800s to the 1960s regarding research of cannabis. And at that meeting, I was like, I need to know you. And he was like, well, I don't have any Desert Storm veterans. I should know you. And so he became my doctor. Um, and he was the first one to write me a cannabis recommendation. So when I was with the Cannabis Action Network, they brought me on. I was a volunteer. And I went out initially on a 13-state tour with LV Muzika. Now, if you don't know who LV Muzika is, LV Muzika is one of uh, a handful of people who sued the federal government and won the right for them to deliver her 300 joints in a tin once a month by the DEA. Right? <laughs> so traveling around with this woman who was, again, she, was she went blind and her one eye was safe. She had literally 12 operations in one eye. That failed, right? And But they saved her one eye and she used cannabis and it reduced the interocular pressure in her eye. So it was recommended by the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. So these were no small names and these were no small realities that I realized that what I had been feeling and symbiotically and others that stated to me that they're feeling there was some real truth to this medical cannabis. It wasn't just us getting high as everybody was suggesting. And we kind of pulled resources and challenges together because if we didn't, again, this is all pre-internet people. Um, we didn't have access to knowledge of these types, much less individuals who had been through such experiences sued the government for 12 years to win that right. Wow. Okay. Couldn't even imagine that. All right. She had been busted as a patient and then realized that, you know what? The community came out and supported her, and she realized how much the support was there for her that she, you know, took it upon herself to sue the government. And the government grows the crappiest weed in, in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, <laughs> that they still provide to one patient to this day of 300 pre-rolled joints in a tin. I literally have the first tin uh, from Robert Randall, who was patient zero, uh, that the government issued to him back in October of 1976. Wow. So 
I realized that I was standing on the shoulders of some really incredible giants. I was in the Bay Area, so of course I worked with Dennis Perone. The first rally I did in 93, he was the only activist who would come out and speak at my rally in Berkeley at People's Park. And, um, you know, he would then go on to write Proposition 215. Uh, I was fortunate to actually be in the house uh, in Washington, D.C., when Jack and Dennis were literally arguing over who was going to run their initiative. Uh, I had previously run the two initiatives with Jack that had failed. The big problem is that it was a 17-page, no, it was 13-page initiative, and it called for reparations, and it was all kinds of chalk-filled full of stuff that no one would green light. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it took literally a handful of us veterans. You have to understand, Jack Herrera was a veteran. Dennis Perone was a veteran of the Air Force in the Tet Offensive. Uh, I was a combat veteran of Desert Storm. So, um, and another gentleman by the name of Richard Davis was uh, also a veteran. And we literally sat there, and there's a picture of it. Uh, I can show you sometime. Um, and it's basically me sitting in between Jack and Dennis as they're arguing as we're convincing Jack to hold off on his initiative, which then Dennis would run his medical initiative that of course became proposition 215. So I've inadvertently kind of been a Forrest Gump in this movement <laughs> because I came in so young and militarily and a lot of our leaders in the movement were military veterans. So they had a respect for my service and my dedication and what I had proven. They allowed me not only a seat at the table, they helped nurture me and, uh, it was impossible not to appreciate that. So when I came back to California in 99, after working for a hemp company in D.C. for three years, I used to import and export hemp from Eastern Europe for Ecolution Hemp Company. So I had a, a massive knowledge between medical, industrial, and you know personal use. So when I came back to California in 99, um, after being in D.C. for three years, uh, a lot of my friends were now running dispensaries or the dispensaries that they had run were shut down. There were the original seven in California, which was Dennis Perone, Jeff Jones, uh, amongst others that uh, the government forcefully shut them down, saying, if you do not close by this particular date, we're going to kick in your doors and everybody's getting arrested. Everybody quietly closed their doors and walked away. Hmm. Berkeley Patients Group was the first of the second generation. So once they closed down, we opened up. Uh, the uh, former uh, accountant um, and a CFO for uh, Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club founded Berkeley Patients Group uh, because uh, he saw the need and he was an AIDS patient. Mm. So he knew he had a death sentence already. Right. So he already, as far as he was concerned, so he was unafraid and he was very brave in opening Berkeley Patients Group with Debbie Goldsberry and Don Duncan. At that time, I was a grower for Ed Rosenthal. Uh, because I had come from the Cannabis Action Network and we had worked with Ed and others, um, they needed people who were reliable and nobody knew who I was when I came back in 99, right? I left in 95, so five years is a, a, a good enough time for people to forget yep. me. And I literally became the behind-the-scenes grower for Jeff Jones's uh, Medical Grow and 
um, Ed Rosenthal's grow and Richard Lee's grow uh, from Oaksterdam University. So I found myself really <laughs> growing a lot of good quality weed, but also doing a lot of the great thing working for Ed Rosenthal was that we had six different grow rooms in one facility and each room was a different experiment. So if there was a experiment like he belonged to every um every botanical garden group etc so he got every white paper possible so such as one time we got he got a white paper saying um the israelis grew hydroponically in socks um the vegetables <laughs> so we're gonna grow we're gonna go get a whole bunch of socks ph neutralize them and now we're going to do a drip setup you know so that's how it is and you know we did. And so each, you know, we did things like, you know, uh, two different varietals, but mm -hmm. eight different um, fertilizers to figure out which one grew the best, which one tastes the best. Right. And so doing things like that really helped give me a concentrated knowledge of cannabis because yeah. I was taking it from beginning. Uh, I was also a clone producer. So we were pumping out 5,000 clones a week into the Bay Area. Um, wow. Through, through the dispensaries. That's what we would deliver to back in 99, 2000. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, we deliver 1,000 clones to some, dis you know, Dennis's dispensaries and others, you know, because that's what they needed. So, you know, we just supplied the demand. And by pumping out quality genetics, you have right. to understand we got those genetics then back to us in finished flower. We were self-reliant here in California prior to the change of 64 in uh, 2018. Before that, um, it was reliant on us to have quality genetics from either seeds or clones to give out to sell to people so that it would come back because we bought specifically from uh, our patients. And literally, I had the pick of the best of the best. We've turned around 80% of wow. what we saw at BPG because there was just so much good quality. But that journey took me on a, a kind of a little kink in 2007. I bought a cannabis, I inhaled it, and I got an upper respiratory infection. Okay. Wow. That was that was mind blowing because I realized that we had a very extensive what we called organoleptic testing. When in a sense, what we looked at, we looked under a microscope, we looked at the size of the trichrome heads, whether they were milky, etc. So we had a, a real scientific methodology to how we followed to have our high quality cannabis at Berkeley Patients Group. But that upper respiratory infection taught me that something slipped through and if it could get to me, it could kill my cancer patients or AIDS patients. Hmm. So that's when I started to reach out to places like the University of Mississippi to find out, hey, can we get your testing solutions? We want to actually start testing cannabis and we don't know how to start. We don't know where the beginning point is. And they ever so politely said. <laughs> in so many words, uh, those who uh, if you are visually impaired, I showed the middle finger because uh, that was uh, literally the kindest I could put it uh, of how they treated us as well as they were like, you're you're a felony central. We can't even talk to you, much less, you know, start exchanging data. Yeah, fuck off, kids. So uh, I realized that we were going to have to reinvent the wheel. So fortunately, I have friends like. Dr. Lester Grinspoon, Ethan Russo, and others that I was like, okay, I need to find, I need to find somebody who can do this. And I was pointed to 
a gentleman in the Netherlands uh, by the name of Dr. Arno Hauskamp, and he came to the United States, and he actually makes the testing solutions for the Dutch government, for the Dutch medical marijuana program. Mm -hmm. So um, in 08 and 09, um, took, took a while, uh, we brought him to the United States for extended periods to work on this research. The, the, the challenge was I cannot take cannabis and put it into a laboratory. If I do so, that's a $10,000 fine per test to the laboratory. Now, when you realize that gas chromatographs cost $100,000 and UVHPLC is upwards of a half a million dollars a piece, um, and most of them are all on loans, uh, labs get very nervous when they actually have to deal with illegal substances. So what we were, what we were taught through Dr. Hazekamp was to create testing solutions. So we tried different, um, uh, every type of uh, what we thought was a, a, <clears throat> a stripper of the plant, and it turned out 100% alcohol was the trick. It pulls all the cannabinoids off, terpenes, diterpenes, triterpenes, all that. Uh, so uh, we had a method where we would uh, grind it, put it into alcohol, shake it for a certain amount of time, use an alcohol, uh, use a pipette, pull it out, and then putting it into a vial, extracting it into there. And now it's a legal testing solution that can go into a laboratory. So we pioneered this back in 08 and 09. Because uh, the main thing about dispensaries in California is we had to act as nonprofits. So we were doing well. So I could use the profits and spend million plus on the research that we were doing, which we worked with a company that was in Berkeley that did overrun testing for Novartis and Bayer. Mm. We were dealing with real professional laboratory mm. people. I had worked with Steep Hill and others, and unfortunately, their standards, uh, they wanted to go proprietary with the standards where we wanted open source when anyone could do it. That's what everybody in the science community fights for. So that's, as a lay scientist, I went to college for printmaking and lithography. So I'm an artist by nature. So I'm a lay scientist, but even I know the basis of science. And fortunately, I had like-minded people and we were able to uh, not only nail THC, we found the secondary spike, which through Mashulam's research we found was CBD. I think you may have heard of this thing. It has turned into a bastard stepchild that has run amok that every charlatan and snake oil salesman to very good operators are having to navigate right now because, um, yeah, that Pandora box got opened and, oh boy, it ran so fast and so far. And you know, Project CBD and others, I credit for, you know, the research and the finding and putting that information out. So when we now had testing in California, um, we started coming out with that in 09 and, and 2010. Um, it, it had a significant shift. It showed us also how ignorant we were because now people were thinking and equating because there was no real education, unfortunately, um, and another dispensary ran with the testing before we figured out the ethics. Okay. Well, mm. what do I mean by the ethics of the new testing of cannabis? Well, the numbers of THC became kind of the arbitrary number. Now, a high THC number became something that people 
desired, I think, due to the causality of alcohol prohibition and thinking, oh, the more bang for my buck, the higher the proof, the more fucked up I'm going to get, et cetera, et cetera. And what we saw was a great shakeout in California cannabis because what was great cannabis because of all the other effects were now um, kicked out by other dispensaries because now you had to meet this threshold. If you didn't meet this 20 something percent or minimum 30 percent THC limit, then bye. You know, we don't want you go away. So which was fortuitous for me because all that great cannabis of all those other instances, the terpenes, diterpenes and all the chemovars that we would now come to understand over time and with further testing. We realized that there was, well, I knew early on because I had actually tried Marinol back, you know, through the VA, et cetera. Um, uh, now, not through the VA. I was trading cannabis to a Vietnam veteran who was getting Marinol, and I had tried Marinol, okay, the tens, the oranges, okay? And what I found is that THC wasn't the thing. It wasn't working for me just as THC. We realized that there is a whole symbiotic relationship that was happening between the terpenes and the ignition and the THCA turning to THC. And why does that matter? Well, THCA, now my hand is the electron. There's an electron in THCA, CBDA that's constantly active. Okay, and that's why your body can't necessarily uptake it or absorb it. And all it needs is a carbon to bind to just needs a carbon and then it'll stop and then it turns from thca to thc and now your body can uptake it and now your body can have it and not only that it can be uptaken in you know you know five different organs seven different Mm -hmm. areas of the brain what science would teach us Uh, but it would take again more science and other states coming, it becoming legal, other states making testing mandatory. Now we've got states making terpene profiles mandatory. I was just in Pennsylvania not too long ago, and they actually list all their terpenes, you know, whereas in California, they're voluntarily doing that nowadays. Uh, I'm also a, a judge for the Emerald Cup, one of the more prestigious competitions. Um, and I judge the CO, uh, the uh, cartridge competition. So uh, I have, for the last seven years, or almost eight years, been doing that. And they actually, their competition now, that tests. And if you're, it fails, you can't be in the competition. So it shows how we have fostered through the decade plus It's been 15 years since testing in the United States, people. That's how recent this is. It was a handful of us that started. And fortunately, when we did, we also got the city of Berkeley to pass a law that the other dispensaries had to test their cannabis too. Because what we were finding is when people would fail, they would just take the cannabis off and sell it to somebody else. And then other people would get the unfortunate bad cannabis and wouldn't know about it because there were unscrupulous people who would just looking for the cannabis to sell. It was rejected by Berkeley patient groups. This shit looks great to me. I'll take it and sell it. Well, I don't understand the standards and the ethics that we had behind the standards because people's lives were at stake. I was a patient. I had, you know, and I'm forever a patient. So my understanding of what works for me and what works for you is completely different. But I do know that science can help us understand what works for you and what works for me. And so we're understanding that now through the, the chemovar process, right? Not only is it's no longer this indica sativa understanding, 
Rob Clark and others helped us understand that uh, that same genetic, because they literally gene mapped these plants, found that same genetic that was growing in the higher mountains as a quote unquote indica was the same plant growing very loose and long in the equatorial regions as a sativa. And what we came to realize is that uh, hemp is sativa. Well, we wear the sativas. We were smoking all different chemovar indicas from different regions broadleaf or narrowleaf varietals that is still being uh, science is still figuring out how to label cannabis because this whole indica sativa hybrid thing has been mis myth and myth information specifically that has no basis in science science has corrected it unfortunately the lie has put on its pants and is halfway around yeah. the world before the truth is put on its shoes so that's the reality that we're, we've struggled with since 08, 09 is unfortunately this Pandora escaped us. So we couldn't set the ethical standards or help the average patient or person understand that higher THC level doesn't necessarily matter. It's a symbiotic relationship of those 500 other chemicals in that plant in your ingestion process and whichever modality you choose, because if you smoke it onset nine seconds, you eat it, it turns to alexihydroxy metabolite in your liver, which is more psychedelic. So people don't even understand that concept or why that happens or what happens during that change. I have, because I've been a nerd. I've also watched people go from zero to uncomfortable really quick. Uh, we've also at Berkeley patients have had to have contraindications forms uh, so that when people have negative experiences with cannabis, we could document them. We had doctors like Dr. Todd McGreer early on, rest in peace, and then Dr. Amanda Ryman come through Berkeley patients group and use our medical place as a resource for access and not only that, to understand the access. Why are people using this? Okay. I noticed something in 2018 when legalization happened. So we were no longer seeing just one individual or their caregiver. We were now seeing groups of people coming in because they all wanted to gawk and look at the products that they had been hearing about for 18 years, but could now experience. So we were having mothers and fathers and son and daughter is bringing their parents and grandparents in and it turns into a whole show and tell because people want to see and know what's happening so it took a, a lot of education and time for people to come around to also see what products were available because prior to, to prop 64 all the products were made by patients for patients uh, dietary restrictions be damned, etc. People created them because it didn't exist for them. So they were the mom and pop who created it. And then we bought it and we sold it. Unfortunately, when legalization or uh, commercialization or overtaxation and overregulation mm -hmm. happened, <laughs> not really legalization, uh, we saw quality drop. We saw 80% of the medical providers could not make that leap either financially or getting things together. It just couldn't happen. And um, it's been a journey watching things start, you know, from the kind of the Wild West, which really worked for California, to where they reined it in and changed cannabis to a point where it's overtaxed, overregulated, 
and uh, the quality of cannabis isn't what it used to be because the people in charge don't understand what quality cannabis is. They didn't grow it. They didn't use it. They don't use it except maybe by an occasional pre-roll joint, which is usually not that great a quality to begin with. And that works for them. Whereas quality cannabis people, such as here in California, they grew up on quality cannabis before you and I were born, right? (laughs) So uh, they know good quality cannabis. The big problem is that we have here in California is uh, we're taking cannabis, uh, growing it, over-commercialized, homogeneously, you know, cutting it, processing. And what's happening is oxygen, light, and heat are happening along the way. Big problem is you've got to package you know, with, with, with cannabis in it. Right. right. A but a little bud goes in it. The problem is the rest of that is oxygen. Okay. Well, what happens? Well, oxygen eats crystals, right? What happens if you take a, a quarter pound of cannabis or cannabis and you throw it into a closet and you come back a month or two later and no longer smells as sexy or, or it's something happened to it. It changed color. Well, it's anaerobic decomposition. If you look mm-hmm. under the crystals, they've turned red because they've oxidized because oxygen's eating it. Okay. So we've got oxygen eating the cannabis in this jar. And this jar can sit around in a distributor for three, six, nine months to 12 months. Okay. And what's happening is every three months, if you tested it, that cannabis has changed mm-hmm. and the quality has gotten less. And it is no longer the chemical snapshot of when it was cut off the vine. It's almost a different product. So California is not refrigerating it, keeping it like an herb, right? Keeping it stable in a nice, humid environment. They could go to something like uh, what in other states are doing, such as using uh, nitrogen and argon, 80% nitrogen, 20% argon in a container neutralizes all the oxygen. So there is no further degradation. Okay. That's huge. That's why those, the, the, if you've ever seen those tuna cans of cannabis, they have NO2 in them. And that's why the cannabis is still solid quality. Whereas compared to in a jar, that oxygen that's trapped is literally eating that cannabis to death. And what's happening is you're getting people who expect that fresh cannabis off the vine are getting stale product consistently here in California. And that's a problem because their expectation has caused them to stare and the overtaxation has caused them to go back to their local dealer because they're getting what they expect in a fresh representation. So here in California, the, the you know Department of Cannabis Control can't even understand that. Okay, I do as a provider because all of our concentrates are kept in refrigerators, right? We <laughs> so that you know, in, including myself, I literally have a refrigerator here in my room where I keep my concentrates and flowers all the time because I don't want them to degrade. So that's why you know I, I keep same with my seeds. I keep them in a cool, dark, dry area because you want to hide it from oxygen, you want to hide it from the light, and you want to hide it from heat. Okay, so those are all the things that will degrade the cannabis and leave you with barely a stem, no longer the capsated, you know, brat that you want to see at the top of, you know, the cannabis plant. So for me, it's been a journey of a gentleman who used to believe that I was burning brain cells when I was smoking cannabis, which, of course, was lies and misinformation spread in our smoking circles. 
to understanding the real science and working with the top scientific minds. Uh, I've been on uh, a, 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 a YouTube channel called uh, Hash Church uh, for seven or plus years with uh, Bubble Man, who does the bubble bags. And we speak with the top experts in the world. We have uh, Sam the Skunk Man, who created Skunk, A's, and other genetics. And so I, I know these people. I visit them when I go to their countries and look at their genetics and understand what these genetics do for me and my patients and, and our, our, our customer base. Uh, and so unfortunately, there's a real disconnect between um, – the state's understanding of what cannabis should be and those cannabis connoisseurs who have dealt with cannabis and understand cannabis. And until that disassociation is corrected, we're still going to see many states still do well, but they won't rein everybody in because the quality of cannabis isn't to the expectation to the consumer. And until that is there, you know, you're going to see states like California continue to languish uh, due to the overtaxation because they don't have to pay the taxes from their local dealer on top of that. And when you're talking 20 to 30 percent, you know, taxation on a product, that's a whole other level, you know. So for me. I've had to immerse myself in a whole other level of cannabis, not just being the individual dealer that I was or that we were. It became a responsibility that we understood that there is a medical need, there is a medical necessity, and going forward, there needs to always be access and access points for high-quality, fresh, very terpene-rich cannabis uh, because that is something that very many people respond to. Not everybody can, can handle cannabis. Some people are allergic to it. You've got people who it makes them nauseous. Uh, you, you know, this is just the uh, hypermyesis, you know, syndrome, which is new. Uh, we're seeing mm -hmm. a large swath of population use cannabis. On top of that, we're seeing also an unprecedented, you know, Mm, illegal cannabis and the use of pesticides and herbicides is yeah. still there. Fortunately, here in California, we test for all that. So we, when I when I purchase from my dispensary, I know I'm getting clean cannabis. And uh, unfortunately, people are still getting sick and dying because they're spiking that stuff with fentanyl nowadays. <sighs> and that is, you know, terrifying. Uh, and in the aspect of just as a, you know, any type of casual drug user. Uh, a friend of mine's friend went to a party and uh, these kids lost their parents because they decided at a party just to do each a line of Coke and didn't realize it was spiked with fentanyl. They died. So this is why testing is so important and understanding what's in your cannabis is so important. And as we start understanding and getting into more chemo types, one of the original things uh, I, I understood when we were doing all of our original testing is a lot of our cannabis chemically looks the same. The THC numbers are just about the same. The difference is in the expressions through the terpene, mm. terpene profiles. That in combinations with the THCs and, and the other CBGs, et cetera, that are present have an effect. And of course, since then, we've during this entire parallel time in the 90s, they, they discovered the endocannabinoid system. 
that every mammal has, which means that we can, there's a reason we uptake cannabis and there's a reason there's no LD50 for cannabis and why it won't kill us, right? Because there's no bindings along the spinal cord. Okay, so for that, that is huge why people can, you know, smoke cannabis and just get tired and go to sleep, get uncomfortable, however the situation is. You know, as the, the terminology, you know, caused you 1,500 pounds in 15 minutes to die from cannabis. And most likely, you couldn't inhale that. You would have to fall on you, right? This is a joke <laughs> You used to tell people, but that's what they, the, the statistics would be around 1500 pounds to inhale that in 15 minutes, which is illogical. And you would die from literally oxygen deprivation, right? <laughs> so this is, we also saw researchers from the other side start to come over to our sides, you know, such as Tashkin when he was doing all the research on lungs and find, you know, the government wanted everything negative on cannabis and, he couldn't come up with anything. He came to our side because he's like, it's cleaning up the lungs. Tobacco <laughs> user, it's better for you. You're, you're, it's actually sometimes better than non-smokers, you know? So that type of scientific understanding and, and seeing why and how they were hidden and why their research was buried and uh, by being around these researchers and these other experts, I've come to these understandings and realizations. And now due to the, you know, the public understanding now, because there's more there, you now have colleges that are teaching cannabis. You're now getting accreditation for mm -hmm. doctors and nurses. I used to teach at Oaksterdam university uh, acquisitions, how to actually bring your cannabis to my dispensary. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, check your turn signals, you know, make sure it <laughs> in the trunk, you know, your, your lights are all working, you know, simple things, but you know, make all the difference in the world, you know, it's, you know, so it's a journey for every patient. And if you haven't grown, you wouldn't have an expectation of what you should be getting. And that's why one of the great things that we teach and we, we work with, uh, you know, patients is, you know, growing is such growth therapy and growing cannabis is, while you're going through an illness or something traumatic is very helpful because of the therapy of taking something, sustaining its life and bringing it to the expectation of what you're hoping for, hopefully, right? You know, Farming is is not easy, right? The, there's no songs about farming, right? There's only laments. Right? So, you know, our whole society has gotten away from its agrarian, you know, realities. Because, uh, I mean, 70 years ago, we used to use, grow 10% of what we use in a day's time, right? Now we're pretty much just extensively, you know, uh, consumers. And so we are understanding to what the product expectation is right so if we don't know that you know a, what a fresh tomato is or tastes like then that you know that canned tin tasting tomato is just fine for us right but if we have tasted a raw tomato that you've grown off the vine right uh, the flavor everything about it just ah and how you grow it if you're growing it in regenerative healthy soil mm -hmm. 
you know, oh, it, it's a totally different experience. It's the same with cannabis. You know, commercially grown cannabis can be grown very well. I've done it, but there is nothing compared to outdoor sun-grown well-tilled healthy soil they've shown through testing that there are showing terpenes and terpene profiles they thought were extinct or don't exist through outdoor cannabis because of the expressions you know right that that ball a million miles away right uh, uh, you know for some reason can keep the nodal structure very tight on a plant outdoors you grow indoors and you stretch that light too long next thing you know you've got a foot you know nodal structure between your your buds so you know there's mysteries to growing and and growing in greenhouse and um that still have application to this day and also show us what the proper expressions of what cannabis can and can be so um you know if you have the availability, you get hold of genetics, grow them. And one of the main things we're working on as we're working on these laws as they change is making sure people have access to home grow, right? Because the same way, you know, once you've grown cannabis, you have an expectation of what you, you want as opposed to what you will accept. And people are either going to become that can of Coca-Cola or they're going to create their own colas, right? which you know, <laughs> growing outdoors and doing it is very possible and doable depending on where you are in the United States. Some have narrow windows to grow in if you're in the more northern regions. However, you can still do it by, you know, vegging it inside and then taking it outside, you know, and then having, you know, nature do its thing. So cannabis is one of the most fascinating plants. It's the most researched plant in the world, however, we don't have a lot of research here in the United States. And the thing that I'm working on with the veterans is specifically around that is to really take cannabis in a direction so that we can have access at the VA level. Um, because the VA of course is more than happy to give us all the pills. I mean, right. You should see the amount of pills my brothers and sisters get. It's astronomical. And the majority of these have never been tested together. They, they have contraindications that they now have to take another pill for because of that one, because it causes, you know, lockup. So now they need a stool softener. You know, it, it's it's the, 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 the insanity of the pill treadmill that they put us on in the VA is terrifying because – uh, all you know for PTSD, they offer us two medications. Both those medications have suicidal ideation. You know, cannabis not so much. So you know, this is why you know uh, I I formed the organization Veterans Action Council uh, as a kind of a buddy check as we check in uh, during COVID because uh, yeah. we didn't want more of the veteran suicide situation to happen, right? Because there's a, you've heard the term about 22 veterans a day commit suicide. Yeah, it's a fluctuating number. It can be significantly higher or around there, you know, in any particular day. And the data and how that data is gathered is a whole other ethical discussion because they right. don't count certain autopsies. They don't count, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, misinformation and the data points around you know the deaths especially due to a pharmaceutical so we want to provide alternatives and we want to have access in a way that our friends in canada do 
they have a veterans access to cannabis program. Have you heard of it? It's, it's going to kind of blow your mind. It used to be, uh, I'm a hundred percent disabled veteran now. Okay. It took me 32 years to get here. I literally got it last month. <laughs> wow. Um, but as a hundred percent disabled veteran in Canada, uh, you had access to 10 grams a day. Now it's three grams a day, but you can now order it on your phone. Right. And you can order it. Uh, the, the national pharmacy has an app, so you can actually order on the wow. app. And then not only that, you can pick your modality, such as I want a sucker, then I want a patch, and then I want a joint. As long as it adds up to three grams that day, they'll package it up, send it to you by the Canadian Postal Mail within 48 hours. Wow. Right? Yeah. And that is something that we're looking at here in the United States. We're like, wow, that would be nice to have because the problem that we have with you know, disabled veterans, you're on a fixed income. You only get a certain amount of disability payment. And the cost of cannabis is too high. Always has been. So that's one reason why we have charitable giving. We give away free cannabis to approximately 250 patients each week uh, and have since, you know, the inception of Berkeley Patients Group because the cost of cannabis is too high. You know, even at the access and access points that we have, we have created... Um, um, you know, uh, SB 34 here in California, which is a charitable giving and something we're trying to instill in other states where uh, companies and uh, distributors and manufacturers can donate cannabis to veterans organizations or organizations like myself to donate to veterans that they then distribute free to each other. OK, and that helps greatly supplement, you know, their access to cannabis because they get free cannabis. I mean, you go to some places, they're walking out with a grocery bag full of products that are free that have been donated. And so we want to see other states do the same. You know, I do travel to Hawaii and I'm very fortunate in, you know, in Hawaii that yeah. they have reciprocation. So I can literally send a copy of my medical card in my, my uh, ID. And for $40, I get a three month recommendation in hawaii so i can go to the dispensaries there when i go and i can get my cannabis so i don't have to travel with my cannabis or deal with the stress of traveling with my cannabis but not every state does that right so these are also areas as we're seeing the change happen we're realizing the depth of the levels that we have to look at to constantly take care of those that are being left behind right that those patients that can't afford. Hi, I just found out I have stage four, you know, cancer just this week. What do I do? That happens all the time to us and has for the mm -hmm. past, you know, 24 years. We turned 24 this month. Okay. Congratulations. So, uh, thank you. And that has shown us the constant need to always have compassion because we never know if today is somebody's first day or if it's their last day. And I, I always find out if it was their last day from unfortunately a relative, you know, that comes and says, thanks. Uh, we appreciate what you did and what you do, you know, and those are the, um, yeah, that touches your soul. And that's, you know, that keeps us driving forward to do and be the ethical integrity standards 
uh, in the industry because of, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad actors. But fortunately, due to the laws, the laws can make good actors via solid laws and by having proper testing and, you know, proper distribution and access points. You know, it can be very successful depending on, you know, state, region, etc. So there's successes as well as there's failures, you know, and we teach people to look at California as an example. There's successes here, but look to our failures, you know, look to Washington State that had its failures in the sense of it dismantled its medical program that inside us in California to really solidify medical cannabis and other states do so as well. So we have to also continue to be good stewards in anticipation as the changes continue to happen. We need to still be there and be the critics to uh, help people understand why things are working and what isn't working and why. Because no system is perfect yet. Right. I know that was your first question. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautiful, man. There was so much there. It's, it's beautiful. And I, that's why I wanted to have you on. I think you're a wealth of knowledge and you've seen it. And you've seen the maturation of not only the growing process, but the way in which we look at the medicine. Like it, it's fascinating to see it, to see it grow up. You know, when I was a young kid, everything was by name. Oh, we're getting white widow, man. Or we're getting some Maui Wowie. And that's how you knew it. Like it, it, it doesn't really say anything about it. And then as you grow older, you start to have a more mature relationship and you can see the Terp profile and stuff like that. And maybe if, if we can see that past relevant behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, what do you see on the horizon as far as some of the challenges and maybe some of the good things that could be coming up? I see it just like <laughs> any other, you know, vice, you know, I, I grew yeah. up again in a very rural area and I could, we could go to the local 7-Eleven or Little General and pick up a, a pint, uh, a shot, you know, a little glass, a pint uh, or a fifth of any liquor, including Everclear, 190 proof, right behind the counter, anytime. You can buy your cigarettes there, same thing. Well, eventually you're going to have your cannabis there as well, right? The bodegas in New York are already fighting for it. You know, eventually you're going to get your Costco ounces, yeah. right? You're going to have your Costco lows, mids, and highs. Or eventually, it's going to get there. It's going to be a while. Don't get me wrong. But eventually, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 the majority of people are sh – uh, there's a shift that happens. People are shifting away from alcohol in some results and finding, you know, cannabis works for them. Better so because, again, you don't get the hangovers, you know, the health issues. Um, and uh yeah aging issues yeah you know i, I look at people who uh, are my age who i went to school with who graduated in 87 and i mean they look sometimes 10 years older than me because of the alcohol and and cigarettes and the other vices that are available that i i don't imbibe in i uh that I, i've seen you know i'm 54 not bad looking for 54. great looking great my friend you know, so, uh, you know, credit cannabis and, you know, having a good life and a good wife and all that. So, you know, it's um, also a constant looking at and analyzing, uh, staying on top of things, you know, joining things like the International Science of Cannabinoid Medicines and various uh, education access points so that you understand the 
where the horizon is and what's coming over the horizon. Eventually, there will be no dispensaries. We There's a time and a place for us, and we're dinosaurs. Here shortly, we're just going to be just another commodity sold elsewhere, right? You saw it just in a certain state. They're selling it now in pharmacies, right? So normalization is going to happen. Uh, we're going to see... Um, most likely schedule three coming down the pike in the next three to six months, uh, which is going to open up banking, which is going to see a significant change across the board uh, and cannabis outright. We're seeing a uh, nano emulsion. So you can actually buy drinks now where there's no mm. longer, you know, the oil settles up at the top, right? It is now you've, you know, I'm selling Pabst seltzers in my dispensary. So they figured out they've got their scientists playing with this stuff now that they can now make it so that it is now no longer saturated up here. It is now throughout the entire drink. And that takes science. Those are things we couldn't do because back then we were only doing butter, right, to extract or or um, um, or coconut oil, right? We had no idea of, uh, you know, butane or uh, CO2 extraction. Now, CO2 extraction now gives you a flavorless. You no longer have the taste of, you know, that cannabis taste when, you know, it, uh, I can't stand it. You know, uh, that that's all gone. So science and technology is going to take it further. And, you know, you're going to have, you know, specific terpene pro profile edibles and drinks that aren't available now that in time as more of these companies and these 3ms are working with cannabis are going to find new ingestion methods that are better and easier you know people like drinks that, that that's an easy access point for them that's it's normal for them why alcohol they're used to just drinking something and having a drink cause them to have an a euphoric experience so you're seeing that currently being a large factor but i think you'll see transdermal patches you'll see other modalities you'll see uh cannabis with the effect without the high you know i i see that for sure because people like that's why they, they like cbd they 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 get the calmness and the effect but without the high the uncomfortable high they're not used to the high you're going to see more type three cannabises, right? Now, for those who don't know, type one cannabis is the high THC. Type two is uh, more of the hemp varietals, you know, the, the cross between the two. And the third is going to be the, you know, low THC, higher CBD. So you're going to see that because people realize these terpenes and terpene profiles help you relax, help you chill. And they don't have the toxicity on your liver that the alcohol does. And I think you're going to see a huge shift there in the sense of easier understanding, because as we know, we grew up with smoking being normal as in tobacco smoking, right? My parents smoked, your parents smoked. We rode in cars, everybody smoked. We even grew up sneaking cigarettes and stuff like that. Well, there's been a whole shift in the mentality where tobacco is no longer as acceptable as it used to be. And cannabis is going to help kind of do that for alcohol. In that sense is, you know, the access of these easier access points for people, such as 
you know, when I wanted to get my mom to try cannabis, a cannabis tea, which was a 20% CBD to one THC was such an easy access point because it was tea. It was something she could, it was just hot water, brown liquid. Oh, that was easy for her to understand. That was, oh, the epiphany came on. Mm -hmm. Oh, it wasn't me sitting around at 70 years old smoking a joint, (laughs) right? Because a lot of the older patients don't want to smoke. What we found is vaporization. We found onset. What I found in 2018, we would have lines around my literally around the block. So I would literally take off my work badge and I would go to the back of the line and just kind of hang out and literally use a timer to see how long it took me to get to the front of the line again. Right. But I would find myself engaging and talking with patients. And I find myself talking to a lot of older women who were post-retirement, having trouble sleeping, and they were looking for CBD THC blends usually in a vapor pen, et cetera. I started asking them, well, why are you trying this now? Well, I'm having difficulty sleeping. I'm no longer being pissed at this since I no longer have a job. So I don't have to worry about that anymore. So uh, I hear this works for people. So I want to try it and see if it works for me. And so what we have seen is we've seen an actual demographic shift. Our individuals went from around 35 to 40 to around 55. Because older patients no longer had the fear being of losing a job or their income, right? They have the time. They have time. They've got oodles of time. And so they're trying cannabis and finding that it works for them uh, as opposed to what they had become reliant on with alcohol, tobacco, or other vices, etc. So... We're seeing demographic shifts, you know, from the younger generation that they're always fearful of is that they're actually more educated on cannabis and aren't necessarily as interested in cannabis as they used to be. Or, you know, they find they're having medical issues or anxiety issues and they've heard about this cannabis thing and have tried it and they're now finding that it works for them. And now you've got anything from, you know, drinks to edibles to topicals to, you know, different modalities and different ingestion methodologies so that it more fits in with their lifestyles, right? It's easier for them to take a, 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 you know, a cannabis pen with them that is easy to fit in the pocket that they can hit because it's not a joint. Because if you smoke a joint, you literally can smell like a joint the rest (laughs) of your day. When I was a kid in Louisiana, the cops would pull us over. And when we would get pulled over, they would ask to smell our fingers. I didn't have a clue why, but now I do because kids were smoking roaches and they would smell the cannabis on their hands. And so that's kids used to go off into the the sugarcane fields where I grew up in Louisiana, rural Louisiana, there in St. Mary Parish. And that's, you know, what they would do because once the sugar cane, it's like, uh, you know, going out into a cornfield. It's so high, people can't see. And when you're in there, people would take their dates and all kinds of stuff. But, yeah, people would go out and get high because it was safe. They wouldn't get caught because, you know, you get caught in Louisiana. That's real time, real jail time, you know. You, I mean, prison time, not mm. your, your kind little slap on the wrist, go about your fucking day with a ticket kind of shit. So, you know, growing up with that type of prohibition, fear, misinformation, and fear mongering, 
you're going to, you, you've seen shifts. You've seen shifts in police departments. You've seen dogs retired. Dogs are no longer even being trained uh, at the federal level on cannabis. They're trained for bombs and other drugs, you know, except that, you know, they do it at the post office and others. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, most police dogs in legal states, they had to retire cannabis scented dogs because they're moot. You know, I've had I've had people tell me that when they're pulled over here in California, state troopers, sheriffs, etc. say, I'd be surprised if you didn't have cannabis in your car here in California now. So what used to be their main entry point to harass arrest is gone. And so they have to rely on, you know, real, you know, real things as opposed to, you know, the low hanging fruit cannabis people used to be. They're now held to a higher standard and also know the higher standards um, and are aware of cannabis and are very helpful regarding it. Uh, I, we, we op I was fortunate to open up a series of dispensaries in Nevada. And, and in Klein Village, Nevada is a very exclusive, very hoity-toity area and literally had two organizations created and formed against us coming in and doing our dispensary. So we created a um, Operation Charm and Disarm where we basically hosted people, hosted the haters, had them come in. <laughs> We had uh, very, we had numerous um, um, uh, show and tells where we basically had people come in and you know here take a look at the dispensary. It's not some scary basement we're bringing you in to sling drugs, you know. And so the first meeting, we actually had the sheriff for the county. Okay, now you know how empowering that is as a as a cannabis dealer to have your local sheriff show up and say to a, a room full of people, "Hi." Your your state passed this law. These people won the lottery for your area. So you can hate it all you want, but you already approved this. These are the good actors. I'm here to tell you, these are the good actors. So, you know, trust me, you know how bizarre that was for me to see experience after cops sniffing my finger as a kid. Now I've got literally the head the lead sheriff up here selling... This is your pot dealer. <laughs> deal with him, okay? You're going to like him, and you're going to deal with it. And, you know, it turns out both organizations disintegrated, and one of the heads of those organizations was the first person to purchase at our dispensary. So by engaging your community, by challenging yourself to educate them, you can change them because all it is is fear. They're afraid. They don't understand. And mm -hmm. if you can bring them in and show them this is what this is, this is what this looks like, and they see a very well-lit, you know, coppered patinas and very professional-looking areas, very wonderful local wood and all this stuff. So it, it, it changes their mind. They realize, oh, wow, this, this isn't some – crazy drug deal or something that happened to me back in the day which you know everybody has their perceptions fears most of it has been projected on television right, right. so you know the, the fear mongering has been there since we were knee high to a grasshopper so we're also seeing education on television. We're seeing television shows about medical cannabis. We saw some, you know, decade ago, you know, where they were, you know, the main character gets something and has to get cannabis to somebody because they're ill. And 
it, it's you saw a shift in the dynamics and the fear mongering, which was now the main vessel. We're now showing compassion and helping people understand the compassion that we were dealing with. Right. We were risking our freedoms back in the day. You know, we used to originally go through for the first decade. We had raid drills every day in anticipation that we were going to get our doors kicked in and, you know, handcuffed and, you know, et cetera. So we had signs, we had signs stashed, we had phone circles so that everybody could call. And if anything happened, literally hundreds of people and signs would show up within moments, which, you know, completely disarmed the police. You know, they, they didn't like these types of negative responses. Why are you talking about us negatively in the media? You know, oh, because you're assholes, you know, and this is why. <laughs> and, you know, they came to realize, oh, shit, we are being assholes. I mean, we're enforcing the laws, but, you know, we're being assholes about it, you know. So we saw shifts in, you know, my police can talk to me. I can talk to my police. And um, not only that, in Berkeley, we found out after the fact that the 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 police chief changed and made a whole series of cannabis um, rulings because his mother had died of cannabis, uh, had died of cancer and she had used cannabis and mm. he saw the respect that needed to walk along with it. So he put out those directives to his police department. You know, Jeff Jones early on with the uh, Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club would uh, go down to the Oakland Police Academy with his lawyer and a mature plant and a little plant in boxes and then literally go in front and educate the police there at the academy. If you walk into somebody's house and you see this, this and this and you see this note on the wall, you walk away because that is illegal medical cannabis. This is what it should look like. And the note should look like this. And over time, guess what? Cops would go in, find cannabis, find all the right things. They'd find the notes on the wall and the plants and how they should look. And they would walk away. You know, a gentleman told me, he's like, yeah, my, they came and busted uh, my girlfriend for prostitution at my house and left all my plants. <laughs> Whereas in the past, what? he would have actually been arrested with the plants and she would have gone off for a prostitution. And he would have been arrested for the cannabis. But again, because of the shift and us actively engaging the police, right, going into their, you know, police academy with literally plants to educate them so that, you know, over time, over the years, those hateful cops around cannabis were now soft, educated, now engaging the patient to ask the patient, okay, are you a patient? Okay. It says you're a patient here. Okay. All right. I'm not trying to stress you out. I understand your situation. We're here to deal with this other situation, right? So what became the low hanging fruit now became a, a shift in dynamics by our active participation. So eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, right? So yes. just because the law has changed doesn't mean you like how the law has changed. California changed uh, in 2018, but didn't allow for charitable giving. So we had to find places to buy for stuff for a penny or buy the cannabis to continue to give to our people until we passed SB 34 here in California, right? And then we had that charitable giving. Well, that sunsets next year. Okay, mm. so what we're now we're organizing currently in California so that we can make SB 34 permanent. And we will. I mean, we're going to lobby that where it's going to happen. So 
but this is what we do, right? We are active participants, such as the Veterans Action Council and Berkeley Patients Group. We've been very active in changing laws and changing history. Give you a quick, well, yeah. it's not so quick. Yeah, please. Berkeley Patients Group wanted our our, our, our business permit, right? That goes okay. on the wall, right? Originally, when we went in California and Berkeley, we could only get a miscellaneous use seller's permit right and they they're like well you have to tell us what your miscellaneous use is we're selling cannabis miscellaneous enough for us and so they <laughs> gave us our initial permit right well in 2002 2003 we wanted an actual cannabis permit the city made us jump through hoops and every time we jumped through the hoops they wouldn't do it so uh at the advice of one of our lawyers james anthony uh, Hawaiian or native Hawaiian. Nice. Um, and uh, he basically said, let's do an initiative. And we did an initiative. We got the initiative on the ballot. Back then it was measure R. Okay. Measure R was back in 2004. It lost by less than 1% of the vote. So if it's less than 1% of the vote, you can pay for a recount. We paid three dispensaries in Berkeley, all paid for the recount. It was $30,000 that we had to come up with in the next day, which we all picked in equally and made it happen. This was back in the whole hanging chads thing. So literally we're going through the, the city was like, Oh, this is a Berkeley um, student. So they're transient throws it out. You know, it turned into just a big brouhaha, but the, at the crux of the thing was we wanted to look inside the die bold voting machines mm. and die bold and Alameda said, Imagine that. I know, right? They said, <laughs> you, you can look inside the machine those were downloaded into. You have no right to look inside those machines. Well, uh, we were called by some lawyers out of Florida who said, hey, we're election lawyers. You have the perfect storm. Can we take your case and run with it? Lawyers, pro bono, taking case. <laughs> Ta-da! Go for it. Well, it took four years, and uh, at the end of it, I kid you not, the state of California—I mean, pardon me, uh, Alameda County nor Diebold could come up with the 420 voting machines. They disappeared. Diebold wouldn't say if they came and got them. Alameda wouldn't say if they sent them. They wouldn't say anything. So the judge said, "Well, since y'all ain't telling me shit." These guys win. <laughs> Their stuff goes back on the ballot. And the next election, which was this was now 2000. This is early 2008. So now it goes on to the ballot. And so in 2008, it went on to the ballot. And we won by 64% of the vote. And that's how we ended up getting our freaking business permit. It took us five years and, you know, a federal court case. And we won that. And then a couple of years later, the federal government came to us and tried to forcefully evict us from our location, of which they did. We closed down, moved right next door, stayed open as a delivery service, found a new location within six months. And in December of 2012, after closing in May, the location, we reopened in a new location that was we were originally gone after by the federal government for being within a thousand feet of a school. Mm. It turns out that. It, if you walked it, it was well over a thousand feet and it was a private French school. <clears throat> but if you do it as the crow flies, property line, mm. property line, oh, it was 984 feet. 
Well, the French school is like, we don't care. They, these guys have <laughs> had, we have had no issues with it. Regardless, the federal government got us to shut down on May. And then December, we acted then as a delivery service. So we stayed continuously operating. <coughs> then in December of that year, we reopened in our new location. And then six months later, the federal government came after us to forcefully evict us, saying we were within a thousand feet of a daycare center. Mm. And so we took them to court because the laws do not say daycare centers or preschool. It says K through 12, right? So uh, lawyers and everybody said, kid, you're going to lose. Um, you should just throw in the towel. And we're like, fuck you. No way. Love it. So, well, inadvertently, um, my friend, uh, going back in history again here, because this is all going to have a tie in together. Our friend Ed Rosenthal got busted in 2002. And <clears throat> when he was busted, he was sentenced to uh, a year in jail. He ended up having a second case of which I was one of the recalcitrant seven. I was the first to refuse to testify in federal court so that he would not cop a federal charge. OK, so um, Ed Rosenthal's case uh, was one here in California that showed that the government could no longer get a conviction right in California. But inadvertently, while going in the elevator up to go see our friend uh, Ed Rosenthal, uh, our, our friends decided that we need to start an organization by patients for patients. And that's when we started an organization called the Americans for Safe Access. You may have heard of it. And we wanted a cannabis specific patient organization. And out of that, they created a law called, well, back then it was the Rohrbacher Amendment, right? It, it failed eight different times. But what the Rohrbacher FAR, now the um, Blumenauer FAR Amendment, basically stated that the federal government could not spend taxpayers' money going into states where there's legal medical cannabis and prosecute people. Well, that finally passed, right? And inadvertently, by the time my case came around, and in 20, you know, I was, they started in 2012 and 2016. Well, it actually started in 2011, but in 2016, the government finally threw in the towel because the now FAR amendment, you know, the uh, Blumenauer FAR amendment basically stated they could not send lawyers in to prosecute me. Mm. So the government had to throw in the towel. And they basically, they offered us limited immunity and we slid it back over the table and said, we're going to take full immunity. <laughs> and they gave me full immunity. And on our, uh, our birthday, October 31st in 2016, I held up while wearing my Scooby-Doo outfit, uh, the, the, my full immunity and the dropping of the case by the federal government. So inadvertently by decades plus earlier, Planting the tree of American for safe access. Years later, the shade of that tree would protect me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Beyond humbling on so yes. many levels, right? Yeah. So it shows you to, you know, if you do the right things, they can sometimes turn out the right way. And it, it, all my lawyers told me we would lose the case. And we ended up winning because of that. And yeah, trust me, mind blown. And that was a that was lots of lawyers, lots of money. And fortunately, the government allowed us to stay open. Otherwise, you know, we would have lost the ability to pay our lawyers <laughs> to do so. So um, 
we've been at the forefront. So when the uh, law changed for the Diebold situation for our business permit, we inadvertently won the right for every American to look inside every voting machine forever. Uh, that's our, our employees, Mike Goodbar and Donald Colbert, rest in peace, uh, were the plaintiffs who won that case for you and every American. So you have the right to look inside every voting machine just because a couple of fucking pot dealers just <laughs> won their goddamn business permit legally. How do you like them apples? Oh, I love them. They sound like green <laughs> apples to me. <laughs> oh, it's tasty. It's the tastiest fruit you'll ever bite into, my friend. You know, there's, there's nothing like victory at the federal level because you've now set precedence for other Americans forever. When we beat them at this case, guess what? They're not going into these other states and doing the same thing. They can't prosecute people. So we become, yeah, by st being steadfast and being the pioneers, yeah, you take a lot of spears and arrows in you. Don't get me wrong. But you eventually are called pioneers. We were called crazy back then. Right. But now, 24 years down the line, you know, uh, this is why uh, not only was I part of the NCIA, I was one of the founders of the National Cannabis Industries Association as well, because we saw the need for banking as well as the need for getting rid of 280E, which will also be dying when uh, the rescheduling happens, because currently we are the biggest low hanging fruit for the federal government. Uh, they make nearly $5 billion a year off of 280E. 5B, that's with a B, people, billion. Okay. So, I mean, myself, I've been hit with, for, you know, multiple million dollars, which I'm still in the settlement phase of currently. You know, not only that, my company did the, um, uh, there was a rebate that was allowed, right? That gave you a credit. It was a, a emergency retention credit by the federal government that if you have a certain amount of employees, they give you this tax break, right? Well, I did that. I filed that and the IRS stole it right from under us, did not send it to us because like, oh, you owe us that money. So we're just going to take that. So they literally took our emergency retention credits that we should have gotten for keeping my business open during COVID. They literally stole that as part of the tax payment already. So that happened to me, you know, just a couple months ago. So the, uh, unfortunately the indignities are going to continue. I am caught in the last swing of the dragon's tail while it dies. And you know, I'm in the offer and compromise and settlement phase right now, and hopefully they'll accept my offer. And uh, because 280 is about to die, they know that I know that the writing is on the wall because once it's out of schedule one, it's no longer on our dispensary's head. And unfortunately, it's a very huge sort of Damocles up mm. there that is uh, all over our, every dispensary. And almost every dispensary you know has to do and deal with their taxes around the 280E. And so quick lesson for those who don't know what 280E is, it was a tax. Uh, basically, it's a tax of 70 plus percent that the government instills on Schedule 1 drug dealers, etc. It happened in the 80s. A drug dealer uh, wrote off his cocaine empire by his his airplane, his you know pilot's flight time, all that stuff, right? Pissed off some senator, and they created this uh, 280E tax thing. And unfortunately, they have used this against... Uh, every dispensary to taxes over 70%. And it goes back 
years, right? They hit me back in 2016, 2017, a couple years ago. Well, they found 2016. They found something that led to 2017. So they decided to gouge me for 2017 too. So I'm not the only dispensary. Almost everyone has gone through it. And <clears throat> it's part of, you know, being a leader in this, you, you get it all. And of course, it just inadvertently, I got hit with 280E one year and one day after beating the federal government. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, they uh, they have ways of making you suffer when you uh, tread upon them after they've tried to successfully heal you out and they realize that you're a cockroach that won't die. Uh, then they try to throw every raid and poison at you. And unfortunately for them, it's not working. Uh, we're still here. We're going to continue to do what we do because uh, we're by patients, for patients. So we have a lot of patience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> it's fascinating. I, I love the fighting spirit, you know, and I think that on some level, it's so it's something that was ingrained in so many of us when we were young. Like you stand up for what's right. And if it's not, right. you fight for it, you know, and right. because it's the right thing to do. Right. My mom actually was my example. My my brother was born without eyeballs, very Whoa. blind, blind and autistic. And the state of Louisiana was supposed to pay for travel from the child's house to the state school, which is in Baton Rouge. Well, that was a three and a half hour drive each way for us where we lived in rural Louisiana. You have to go through all these small 10 mile per hour towns across bayous because we live south of Baton Rouge. So it's all bridges and stuff all the way until Baton Rouge. So in 1978, my mom decided to sue the state of Louisiana. She also started an organization called the American Council for Blind Parents. Uh, it, there was no organization for high. You just had a child that was born blind. Mm. You know, there was no clearinghouse of information. There was no one to call, like it, lump it. That's how it was. So she started this organization and it quickly grew to within 40 countries in every state within a year, right? Because blindness, unfortunately, is everywhere. And uh, we got invited to the two different blind conventions. There's a Republican and a Democrat. So there's the American Council for the Blind and the um, uh, the other one, uh, Democratic Council for the Blind, or something like that. Uh, so you know there were there were multiple factions. So we found ourselves going to you know conventions every year, multiple ones, um, because blindness is so in inherent in my mom's organization was really getting things going but people were also fascinated by the case that she had against the state of louisiana because the state of louisiana was basically refusing to fund it at the the uh, budget level so it was never funded and so uh we received death threats uh, all kinds of nasty phone calls uh that i would pick up and traumatize me at a very early age you know, of people saying, you you know, insert how they're going to kill my mother and my brother and for, you know, going against the state. And yeah. And what we also found is that all the, the parents and relatives of the schools of the deaf and the blind who happen to be right next to each other were quite strong and built a coalition. And over time, we won the case. My mom's case won. And by the time I was a junior in high school, she started this when I was in grade school, um, 
the bus came to the end of the cul-de-sac that we lived on out in sugarcane country. And every kid who is deaf or blind now had access. So my mom was my example yeah. that you have to fight for what you need, right? She could not deal with three and a half hours. You have to understand school for the deaf and school for the blind is during the week. So on a Friday, you go pick up your kid for the weekend. So on a Friday, you have to drive three and a half hours up and on three and a half hours back. Sunday, you got to drive him back to school to be in his dorm. So that's three and a half hours up, three and a half hours back. That's 14 hours of your weekend gone, right? That's just transporting child to and from. So early memories of me doing my homework in the car, getting to, you know, Lafayette and then going to Mr. Gaddy's Pizza and then, you know, falling asleep on the way home, you know, that was normal childhood for me, right? Whereas now it's no longer a thought for many people because my mom made the sacrifice, took it on the chin, did what was right for the greater good. And yeah, it was a slog through the swamp, but she won. So it taught me that, you know, you have to fight what for what you want and what you believe for. Even if you think it should be right and everybody else should be right. <laughs> It doesn't mean it's going to happen. And so yeah. that example was, you know, further instilled in me in the military where they taught me how to fight, but they never taught me how to stop fighting. Right. <laughs> so it became very instilled early to fight for what was right. And then I found my category, which was cannabis, and I fought with it for every inch of my freedom and have won my existence out of it. So, you know, determination, uh, sticking to your beliefs, even when everyone doubts you, is sometimes the price you have to make to be here. That's, man, that's, that's one of the most inspirational quotes I've heard. Thank you for that. I, I, I wish more people, and you know what, I think when people do it, like hearing your story today and hearing other people's story who have fought and stood against the odds, and become a better person, not only for themselves, but for so many people behind them. Like that's the 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 pebble in the pond, and it radiates outwards. And more people can then hear that story and hold that story close to their heart and become part of the story in a way. It's contagious, I think. Oh, uh, changing history is quite addictive. Once you've done it, you, you enjoy <laughs> doing it. And that's why we lobby. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things VAC is doing is we're not only lobbying at the federal level for access. We're currently working at the United Nations. We're working on adult legal access by 2029 so people will stop being executed for cannabis. Multiple people were executed in Singapore this year and didn't even touch the fucking plant. So we've been, uh, I've been under the mentorship of uh, Michael Krowitz, who has uh, been at the UN since 97, when he told Jack Carrera and Dennis, I'm off to find out what we can do for the movement. And, um, he is an Air Force veteran and one of our, our, our people in the Veterans Action Council, and he has guided us and educated us as we work uh, for the past three years at the UN. So uh, we do side events um, because we have people like, uh, if you've ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Kevin Sabet, he is a massive prohibitionist, and he started off originally as a speechwriter for Obama. 
And then he basically got into the Office of National Drug Control Policy and has been a um, a boil on the pus of an ass ever since and has continued to reshape and reshift his focus, literally stealing DPA material and shifting it just slightly for his own, literally same font, same pictures, everything. Uh, and the problem is, is that this gentleman is being heard basically solo uh, at the UN level and countries like China, Indonesia, Pakistan, Singapore, who want to continue to execute people, China, etc., cetera, um, all are using his talking points. So we're having side events, which are educational events at the UN in between sessions where we're actually educating them on the positives of cannabis. Uh, we're working with a coalition of countries from Spain, France, South Africa, Germany, among others, uh, to uh, flip this law because uh, Michael and others, uh, they were successful in getting medical cannabis taken out of the most dangerous drug category in December of 2020, which is why you're seeing so many other countries now have medical cannabis because it's legal around the world. We are currently challenging um, via a FOIA request the U.S. Attorney General's office because they have actually rescheduling and actually they reschedule all the time um, because uh, there's a line in the treaty. Each year in the uh, uh, <clears throat> the CND, the, uh, uh, the Narcotics and Drugs uh, 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 Congress that meets in Vienna in March, which I'll, we'll be there again this year. Uh, they basically put out a list of uh, drugs that are banned each year, okay, that are considered Schedule 4, which is our Schedule 1. And so each year they're made a different schedule. And so the Attorney General then, at his own discretion via this treaty, then changes, okay? So this year there are about five meth analogs and one synthetic uh, THC that was made illegal. Uh, at the international level. Well, all the U.S. Attorney General goes is just goes and puts, puts them in their prospective scheduling number. So currently, your Attorney General, Merrick Garland, can literally change scheduling of cannabis right now and has actually been requested. And so we're trying to find out what happened to our four-year request as well as um, we have another four-year request with Representative Nancy Mace uh, for all the VHA data regarding cannabis since 2010. Uh, Michael Krowitz and other uh, veteran leaders uh, got the VA at the bottom of their forms that say if you discuss medical cannabis with your physician, there's a checkbox. Well, we asked for that data. And we just got back after a year and a half, just last week, we got back uh, the government saying, we don't have any data. We don't have any of that. So right now we're about to spearhead a new uh, uh, head up their ass campaign. <laughs> We're going to really use uh, Representative Mace and other experts to now uh, petition and ask what has happened to this data. Why don't we have it? Why did we ask for this data? Is because we started to, as VA people, we started to see data coming out about cannabis, and we're like, well, there must be data points somewhere. Okay, well, give us the data points. We've got no data. Well, how do you have data points coming out but no data? Stay tuned, people. This one's going to be fun, as well as in um, hopefully in 2029, we'll make it legal worldwide 
and you know check back with me uh well check back in, in april and i'll let you know can let you know yeah. what happened um on the ground there because we'll be there in vienna for the week of the cnd uh specifically uh the dates haven't been released yet um we'll probably get those dates um in december when we meet with the justice department and others when they'll kind of give us what they're going to be speaking out and toward so yeah, we as activists and as veterans are meeting as dignitaries and as outside observers at the UN and are meeting with countries and educating them because we're past here in the United States. Now we want to affect change worldwide. And if we can stop people being executed for cannabis worldwide, I can feel a lot better about myself uh, and, and my other activist friends do so too, because it is heinous to think that for what I do and have done daily for years and the hundreds of thousands of tons of cannabis that I have sold over the decades would have gotten me executed decades ago. And I don't want people to ever have to continue to deal with that which unfortunately people still are and next year it's gonna still happen and the next year after that it's gonna still happen and hopefully the year after that it's gonna stop so um we're gonna work on that so yeah it's not easy um but you know we're driven as activists you know i was given five years to live back in 1991 but because of the wasting syndrome they didn't know i had they just didn't see me living and so ever since then every day is kind of gravy right once you survive <laughs> battle every day is gravy and <clears throat> you you there's nothing that teaches you peace quite like war and nothing spurs change like being part of change so get off your asses participate find local organizations or something that you believe in and do something to help someone you know as the dalai lama said live your life right early so that later you can enjoy it a second time 24 years ago they were calling us crazy you're gonna get arrested the lawyers said don't document anything all that other stuff that we ignored them and said no we're gonna show people that we're doing it the right way and that we were trying to do it the right way that we're not trying to smuggle money that we're doing everything above board and look what can happen change can happen there's now it started off when i got into this there were no legal states there was no medical states and now there's 40 plus medical states and 20 plus recreational states so it went from it's never going to happen in your lifetime kid is what they told me in 1992 93 to uh when's it coming to my state <laughs> <laughs> When's it going to be federally legal? So, and now when is it going to be internationally legal? Well, stay tuned. Hopefully by 2029, if not by 2034, because it's an every five year kind of process at the UN level. There's the 2024 is what we're going to be reading. They're going to giving us the updates on the net last five years. And we're going to be presenting to them in uh, March of this year, our five next five year plan where it is actually going to be legal in the end and the who sees it and the other organizations understand it and we just have to walk the walk and be the good stewards and next thing you know you know there'll be other places in the world for you to go and access your cannabis hopefully <laughs> yeah 
You know, it, it, it brings to the question, I talk to a lot of people in the world of psychedelics, especially psilocybin, and it seems that cannabis has sort of paved the way for psilocybin in a lot of the states that are now finding ways to use it for PTSD. And I'm just wondering, with all your background, what are your thoughts on some of the parallels between the two industries? And are they going to face the same challenges or are they, they they're different animals or what do you think? Uh, medical is always going to be its own animal uh, because uh, there always needs to, there is an expectation of a medical uh, product or program that has to be of a higher ethical standard. End of story. It has to be pure. It has to be tested. It has to be what it is. It can't not be what it isn't, right? So those are uh, crucial pieces of the puzzle that have to always be in place. Uh, also, um, uh, the availability for people to use it in hospitals, availability for people to, in the future, to have nursing homes where you can have holistic places for you to pass by being able to use psychedelics as well as, you know, cannabis as well. You know, we found in the veteran community that cannabis is quite the palliative. Superb is a palliative. Okay. However... If we want to get to the deeper parts of our our healing, psychedelics are key to it. Okay, and we I have self found that out. I've done more yeah. than a hundred acid trips myself, and <laughs> well as I enjoy psychedelic mushrooms every six months to help stave away the chronic depression that comes with yeah. the, the the various realities of living in this existence. Not to mention the added traumas that I have yeah. had and experienced from you know pre war to during war to uh, being in the drug war. I've taken more hits in the drug war <laughs> and been in more federal cases in the drug war than I ever. So, you know, prior. So those are all stresses and stressors that um, fortunately cannabis has helped and assisted me in, you know, lowering my blood pressure, keeping me uh, more than anything able to sleep. Right. You know, that is one of the most important things. I watched a friend of mine go through a federal case and he wasn't allowed cannabis and he couldn't sleep. And the lack of sleep literally drove him insane. You know, and uh, the main thing that I had during my federal cases is I had access to good cannabis and I kept a, a consistent regime. So I go to sleep at a certain time and I wake up at a certain time and do the things that I need to do. And by keeping those and having solid sleep beyond the most important thing and cannabis and others help and assist that. Uh, I have severe sleep apnea, so I have to have sleep with a a, a, a a machine to assist me breathe at night, okay, to release the stress on my heart that the, you know, the 40 episodes I would have an hour, you know, would affect. So real science and real medicine have their place in our everyday lives. There are needs for medications. Uh, however, oh, hello, who are you? <laughs> That's my cat, Chairman Meow. Oh, Chairman <laughs> Meow. Well, hello, Chairman. Uh, and he, as he jumps to the chair. Yeah, but. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, ca cannabis, um, you know, recreationally, I think for people, there will always be a, a place for. And I think that, as Dennis Perone said, all cannabis use is medicinal because as people find out oh, the stresses of reality and they're using it to relax, well, that's medical, you know, that is really, you know, it goes past the psychological there. 
uh, which is also very helpful on top of that, uh, because that's what I found is what cannabis helped me deal with the stress much as, as it didn't allow my mind to keep recirculating on, allowed me to get into other things and to breathe into life. And fortunately I have lots of hobbies and things. So right. I would embrace those and do things that I love to do, you know, growing cannabis and growing cannabis two and four medical patients was again, a higher purpose. And so what we have found for us in our group and our PTS, our post-traumatic stress is helping others selflessly inadvertently helps ourselves and relieves our PTS because now we have a purpose, right? Because part of PTS is we feel lost. We feel without purpose, but by working with others and actively working for change together, because our veterans action council, we're all volunteers. We're all equals. There is no, there's no pay. There's no dues. We didn't want money and we didn't want hierarchy. We wanted to be equals. And we found that worked very well for us because as a buddy check, we realized that we had very strong Rolodexes. So we started working together. And next thing you know, in the past year, we've lobbied Capitol Hill twice, you know, working past the research area. We were working, asking for a voucher system here in America so that we could subsidize our cannabis access, right? We also want access to our Second Amendment rights because, you know, not only are we veterans, we are probably some of the most well-trained, know how to respectfully handle weapons better than everyone, you know? Needless to say, I've handled everything from, you know, a squirt gun all the way to heavy artillery, you know? It gives you a healthy respect along the way of, you know, arms and what those are. But, you know, as a cannabis patient, currently I can't own a weapon, you know, and so currently we have two cases that are before the Supreme Court that within the next six months could open it up finally because uh, there was a previous uh, Supreme Court um, ruling where they stated that just because you do something illegal, it should not take away your rights. Right. Such as, you know, using cannabis should not be a usurper of your Second Amendment rights. So um, hopefully between those two cases, we're going to see some real change come down the pipe, you know, even for, you know, that access. Uh, so as we see and as we get more of these politicians to grab and take these discussions forward, we're also bubbling up and looking at the next round of change we want to see. Right. We would love to see the VA growing medical can cannabis at VA facilities using veterans to grow it as part of an actual grow as well as a, a growth therapy program, right? We would love to see the VFWs and American legions be converted into cannabis use centers because currently you can go to all these and buy all the alcohol you want. And you know what? None of us want that. We want to take our, we want to take our dab rigs in there and dab, you know, or smoke a joint and talk to our brothers and sisters. We're now seeing certain ones start to do that in California and in New York and other places. Um, and not only that, we want to turn them into educational centers. So when you get out of the military, hi, here's your six clones. We're going to teach you how to grow, uh, you know, along the lines of a, a group um, back in Amsterdam, um, Positronics. It was a group because, again, cannabis is, is tolerated, not legal in Amsterdam. So you belong to this private club and you would get this key. And the key opens it up to a warehouse where you would come in and 
immediately there's an entirely tiled room for you to cut, manage your clones with racks and everything else. To your left is a mother room for you to actually cut your clones from, right? And then there was also a collective area for hash making. So if you used the sieves, the house got a 10% cut. There were microscopes on hand. There was education as well as they sold seeds, clones. They had organic restaurant on on hand not only that they made their own ballasts and and all and lights because it was too expensive to import them into amsterdam so they would do all this they mixed their own living mixed soil that they would then bag because people had to be very discreet in the netherlands right they they have to grow in these very private small areas there's no large-scale grows like we see here in, in the states and britain etc so the ingenuity of people behind the scenes have helped us understand the potentials, right? We would love to see, uh, you know, a veteran coming from trauma and from war and then take them into growth therapy and have them grow something and bring it to life. And if they're like this cannabis and then they're using it and now they've found a purpose to take something from you're no longer killing, you're now bringing it back to life and keeping it and sustaining it. It does more for the up here and for the soul and the spirit than people realize. And we want our brothers and sisters in arms to experience this potentially. So um, these are things we'd love to see over the horizon as, as opposed to these alcohol veterans, dark centers turning into these very bright enlightening grow share experiences where people can have and enjoy and not have to worry about drunk driving home which they expect yeah. out of every vfw and american legion currently because i can go into Amer any american mm -hmm. legion or vfw and that coke machine that is not coke that is not pepsi that is not seven up in those things there's all beers right <laughs> so that's the reality that you know i grew up with and seeing and knowing um, in my rural VFWs, because we would clean them out, and then the kid would put in a dollar and hit that Pepsi, and oh, out comes a Miller. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. So yeah. the normalization of cannabis will hopefully be the same normalization that alcohol has been over time, and it will be as the normalization and decriminalization and finally legalization at the federal level opens it up for interstate commerce and larger brands than you realize, right? You asked yeah, what was coming up There you go. I love it, man. <laughs> In some ways, I think it speaks to the idea of like a product, like alcohol is a product of decay. Like you take grapes and you decay and then you drink them. And it's, in some ways, I can't help get past the philosophical idea. If you if you consume a product of decay, in some levels you're bringing that into your body. But if you're produced, if you're running on a product that is growth and new growth, in some ways you're providing a lifestyle like that. Like well, if I look your at body cannabis, is or if I look at psilocybin, like I see these products. Yeah, and your body is symbiotically in harmony with it, <laughs> right? I did never. I never felt that with alcohol the way that I feel with cannabis. It feels natural in my body, whereas alcohol does not. You know, so that's also the endocannabinoid speaking up for us and saying, "Yes, not only does this work for me, I'm going to put you in homeostasis. Homeostasis. That's where we want to be. 
when your CB1 receptors and CB2 receptors are properly stimulated, holy shit, you're there, right? So if you realize that less than 1% of the population has a proper saturation of their endocannabinoid system, and at that you're in homeostasis and in health, how unhealthy is our society as a whole? And just imagine if there was homeostasis via this in our society, how the healthcare industry would be significantly yep. different. The pharmaceutical industry would be completely different. There would be a completely different shift because people would have harmony and wouldn't be sick and wouldn't be debilitated and homebound at areas where they didn't need to be, you know, because of, you know, alcohol turns to sugar, diabetes. Oh, shit. Yeah. You know, which is a huge problem. I learned a lot about that because I went to a lot of conventions for the blind and I watched people go from their diabetes and go completely blind. I had a woman I used to have a crush on as a kid that she used to could see me. And by the end, she could no longer. And how heartbreaking it was for me. And it was a cannot even imagine how absolutely devastatingly heartbreaking it was for her. And so this was brought on by bad diet, by lack of access to good, healthy food, right? And good, healthy uptake, which we need farming. We need farmers. We need agrarian living and people communally working in areas and doing away with their front green grass lawns and actually putting and erecting up actual gardens. And let's go back to exchanging fruits and vegetables with each other and are exchanging our cannabis and our mushrooms and our other psychedelics, you know, our toads, here's my toads, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, we need better harmony. We do. I, when you look at it from that angle, you know, there's a quote that says something along the lines of in a society of it's sick, the person running away is the only one that's healthy. And when you look at the people that are fighting, it seems like they are the people that have a healthy constitution. Like this is all wrong. we got to fight this. But if you're if you're full of fear, if you're full of dis, dis ease, of course you're not going to be able to fight the good fight. You're not going to have the resource. You're not going to have the energy. You're not going to have the fortitude. You're going to be consumed by fear. And so, I just want to say thanks again, man. I, I really appreciate the road that you've traveled. But more than that, I, I appreciate you coming out and explaining to people about the pathway that's there for them to follow. And that it's not an easy fight, but it's a worthwhile fight. And there's meaning in there, not only for you, but the people around you. And that's how you build a better society. Through community, right? Yes. That's why we, we charitably donate locally and give locally because giving nationally doesn't do shit for us locally, you know, <laughs> but by supporting the local organization that is providing food or we, we provide one that's the Berkeley free health clinic. Oh, they're out there providing health care to the underserved dental checks, giving them, you know, shots and the things that, you know, could, people are too afraid to go or can't afford to do, you know, so these are worthy uh, people of your donations. These are worthy areas. And when you find that you contribute in your community, your community responds. You know, we had security walking around earlier on in our dispensary in San Pablo Avenue is world renowned for prostitution. And our security literally cleaned up our neighborhood to where when the, the, the news would come around and try to do hit pieces on us, they would tell the, the local news to fuck off and go away. These people are cleaning up our neighborhoods and you just want to take a dirty fucking cheap shot. Fuck off. 
You know what I'm saying? And but that's where community matters by yeah. going to your local neighborhood uh, meetings and finding out. Oh, people have problems with you know um, dog feces everywhere. Well, then you sponsor and you put up the you know the the paper bag. I mean the plastic bags and the the bins for people to put that stuff in. And next thing you know, by actively listening to your community and donating and contributing to it now they've moved on to something else that can make better for their community. And not only that, they see you as a direct contributor to the betterment of their community. And what more could you better ask for than your neighbors waving at you and saying hello and thanking you? I mean, that it's priceless and, and something I hope you can all experience because it's an awesome fucking feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this podcast has been an awesome feeling. I really appreciate it. Is there what, before I let you go though, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Uh, let's see. I can be found. I am on most socials under ATN420, the letters ATN420. So I'm on, you know, uh, uh, threads, uh, Facebook, you know, uh, all that. I can be reached at uh, ATN420 at gmail.com. Um, I'm usually found at Veterans Action Council and, you know, veteransactioncouncil.com. Uh, we are, at, we do, you know, discussions, roundtables. So uh, currently I'm excited for what's coming up in March. Uh, we've actually submitted stuff for um, uh, discussions with the Justice Department for their understanding of what are going to be their talking points, as I said, stated in um March so we can understand and craft ours around it and our message that is isn't theirs you know because uh, they have their agenda we have mm -hmm. ours so uh we want to be respectful by knowing the rules before we break them right um so <laughs> you know that's just how, how it's gonna be um uh, you know very excited for uh interstate commerce that's coming down the pike, um, which, you know, I also am very excited for the rescheduling that's going to happen. I wish it were descheduled altogether, but I have to also remind people we didn't lose all our rights at once. We're not going to gain them all back at once. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be incremental and change is painful and slow. So contribute, get active, find a local organization within your state that is doing something and contribute, get active, get involved, and you'll end up with a, a soul satisfaction that I, I don't think people won't, you know, appreciate, especially your soul. <laughs> That's so well said. So beautiful. Hang on briefly afterwards. I'm going to talk to you briefly, but to all our friends that, that hung out with us today, thank you so much for being here. Go down to the show notes, check out the links and get active, participate, become a better person. The fight starts with you and you can do it. So that's all we got, ladies and gentlemen. Aloha. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. 
listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.